If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5. Next week, we will continue our series through the Gospel of Luke, where we left off a few weeks ago, to go through this short series that we've called Don't Waste Your Summer. And over the last few weeks, we have been thinking about how to combat the tendency in these summer months, times that are filled with, with leisure and vacation and uh, extra time to do the things that we like to do and spend time with people that we like to spend time with, but nevertheless tempt us to spiritual laziness. And what we have said is that we want to remain constant in our life with God and for God, and more than that, to even look at leveraging the extra time that we have to do the things that He has called us to do in ever-increasing ways. This morning, as we come to the last message in this series, we want to focus today on our life together with God's people in the local church. If your definition of church is something like more than one Christian together, then by New Testament standards, you have a deficient view of the church if you think of the local church as an optional extra, like heated seats or that fancy spoiler in your car, then you've misunderstood what the New Testament has to say about God's plan for His people gathered together, living and serving and loving with one another. What God says about the church involves something much messier, Something much more involved, but something much more glorious as well. And to catch a glimpse of these things, we want to look to 1 Thessalonians 5. This is one of the first churches that Paul planted. He was uh, forced out quickly. You can read all about this in the book of Acts. Uh, and so he was concerned that they had not been established. He sent Timothy to go check things out. And Timothy's report came back that they're doing amazingly great, that the gospel had firmly taken root and now they are seeking to reach all of the area. They are known for being a gospel people and that they are encouraging and building one another up. And so he is writing with thankfulness and yet also to continue to give them instruction in part on how to live as the people of God. And so we pick up on these instructions that the apostle is giving in chapter 5 verse 12. He says this, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. This is the word of God this morning. 
Paul understands in those last verses that God's aim, God's goal, God's design for the life of his people is their sanctification. That is their ever-growing conformity to the image of Christ, their ever-increasing godliness until he fully and finally completes it and we exist forever with him in perfect holiness. And so he talks about that in the previous section, chapter 4, verse 3, where he explicitly says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And now, because he knows this is the will of God, he says, this is what I'm praying for, your sanctification, that the God of peace would sanctify you completely. And right on the heels, the heels of this entire section of verses speaking about the church, speaking to the church about the church, and the fact that sanctification is going to come, Paul gives these directions. He says, this is how you should be living. This is what should be taking place when you are gathered together and when you are apart, because this is the means by which you will experience God's sanctification. In other words, insofar as we are living as the people of God and ministering to one another as the people of God, then the sanctification of God will be accomplished in our midst. Our maturity in Christ can never be accomplished on our own in the way that God has attended. Yes, we can sit, we can read, we can pray, we can be involved in ministry, but we need the gathered church in order to grow the way that God intends us to. In the language that we've been using at Crossway for the last few years, we need the people of God to help us move to the right, that is, move to greater maturity in Christ. Likewise, the opposite can be said. You, dear saint, if you are a believer, you need to be a willing instrument for that process. You need to see yourself as a minister, ministering to God's people, helping them mature as God works through you. And the question is, what does that look like practically? What, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to, to be ready for that? Those are the kinds of things that we want to look at this morning. Uh, I have two directions listed uh, in your notes from these verses. And I just want to give the, the caveat that we'll, we will spend the majority of our time on that first direction. So when we say, and now number two, you don't have a panic and think we'll be here for an hour and a half. Although some of you I know wouldn't mind. Others of you uh, would feel a bit peckish and want to go to lunch. So what should we understand about ministering for change to the people of God? First, we should understand how to participate in ministry to God's people. How to participate in ministry to God's people. What does it actually look like? What should we do? Paul tells us in verses 14 through 15 very clearly, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now we need to notice from the outset that uh, once in these verses, twice in the whole passage that we read, Paul addresses the Thessalonians as brothers. And if any of you know uh, some language other than English, you'll know that very often gender is a chat attached to words. So if I'm speaking Spanish and you are my friend, I will call you a chico if you are a boy and a chica if you are a girl. Okay. Now here's the thing. If I'm addressing the entire congregations gathered here, boys and girls. I don't say uh, chicos and chicas or hermanos y hermanas, brothers and sisters. I would just say hermanos 
brothers, plural, and it's understood that male and female are included in that. Sorry, ladies, but in terms of language and culture, male dominance still exists. And what we need to understand, the reason why I'm even bringing that up is because you need to understand he's not just meaning some special class of leaders in the church. He doesn't just mean even the men in the church. He means, rightly translated, brothers and sisters. This is the ministry that we urge you to do. So he has in mind here the totality of God's people. If you are a believer, you are in view in these verses. But more than that, he's calling them brothers and sisters because he is highlighting their mutual fellowship in Christ. These people, these Thessalonian believers, share in the salvation that has come by God's grace. In love, God looked on sinners who deserved hell and gave them heaven instead. God did this not by ignoring their sin, but by sending a Savior who would be a substitute for them. One who would stand in their place to live out a righteous life that they need to stand before God and to bear the punishment that they deserve for failing to live a righteous life before God. So Jesus Christ came as a righteous man. He died under God's wrath and he did that for us. This is why salvation for Christianity is unique in all of the religions of the world. It comes by God's grace, not what we do for Him, but what He has done for us through Jesus. And these Thessalonians, through the ministry of Paul, like Paul, have been brought into a new life in Christ. And it is because of that shared experience that Paul reminds them we now have a new shared life as well. There is a newness, there is a change that should be evident, and in part that means we are to minister to one another as well as be ministered to. And here Paul gives these specific instructions on the different kinds of people and the different ways that we should be doing this in the church. First, he says that we should admonish the idol. We should admonish the idol. Now, who are these people? Who, who, who do we understand to be the idol? Well, some translations have unruly. These are those that are disobedient and disorderly. It's actually a military term for someone who was always out of step with the rest of the column. So if you imagine a modern-day army, and they're marching in formation together, and every time uh, the, the drill sergeant is calling out left, 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 right, left, when he says left, this dude's putting down his right foot. Okay? He is out of step with those around him. But lest you have Gomer Pyle in mind, uh, for Paul, this is serious business. Because he, what he's saying is these are Christians who are intentionally falling out of the formation that God designs for their lives by sin. These are, these are overt, obvious, conscious decisions that spring from one who is overtly self-willed. It might be seen in laziness or rebelliousness or addictiveness or impulsivity or deceitfulness. It is someone intentionally saying, I choose not to live the way that God wants me to live. The idol are those who want to do their own thing, go their own way, and live according to their own desires. And Paul gives examples of people like this previously in chapter 4 as he does in other letters as well. Now, when we see people like that in our midst, when we see other Christians living that kind of lifestyle, what are we supposed to do? Paul says we should admonish them, that we should admonish them. Now, what does that mean? 
Now, I can say I admonish you, but what are we really talking about here, biblically speaking? The word means something like correct, counsel, or instruct. It comes from a Greek word called nuthateo, where actually, if you um, are aware of such things, it's where a, uh, a practice called nuthetic counseling takes its name. Just to give you a little bit of history there, I think because it's helpful to understand the text, there was a pastor and a counselor named Jay Adams who um, saw that people in the church had struggles, they had problems, but the church didn't want to deal with it. They were essentially sending them outside of the church to secular psychology and psychologists. So he went to go study psychology. And one of the things that, that blew his mind was that Sigmund Freud, the kind of fountainhead for modern psychology, actually had his idea for psychology by looking at the church. He saw the church in his day where pastors would offer counsel for God's people. And he said, you know, we need something like that, but without the religion. We, 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 need, we need people that can come along and advise and analyze your problems and tell you how to change, but without all of the gospel stuff, without all of the Christ stuff. And so in his mind, what he wanted to create was, quote, a group of secular pastoral workers where analysis and help and counsel would not come by doctors and priests. In fact, he said it should not come by priests because he felt like Christianity was garbage. So Adam said, wait a minute, if the church used to be so good at giving counsel that, that the world was looking at it saying we have to imitate this, then, then why can't we do that again? And so what he did was we went back to the New Testament and he tried to see what does the Bible say about how the people of God should be ministering to one another. And so what he sees is a biblical pattern of this command of admonishment, a biblical pattern of, quote, lovingly confronting people out of a deep concern in order to help them make those changes that God requires. And that's what Paul is getting at here when he talks about admonishing these individuals. And this is a common theme that we see throughout the Bible. So in this regard, Adams understands what Paul is getting at. When we see people in sin... When we see those that are unruly or idle, our first thought is not, that's none of my business. That, that, that's none of my business. If he didn't learn anything from the Cain and Abel story, it's, it's this. When he replies, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, you are your sister's keeper. We don't bury our head in the sand. We go out of loving concern and admonish them and say, your life is not in line with God's plans. Let's, let's bring it back into the conformity of Christ. Let me come alongside you and help you do that. Our goal is not simply to point out their sin. Our goal is not simply to fault find. Our goal is to help them find change in God. That's what Paul is getting at here. And so with humbleness and love, we open God's word and we admonish the sinning brother or sister to see God's pattern for their life and to come back into conformity with it. That's part of the ministry that all of us as God's people are to have towards one another. Secondly, we should encourage the faint-hearted. We should encourage the faint-hearted. Now, who are these people? Who are the faint-hearted? These are those believers who tend to become discouraged easily. They look at what's coming at them in life and have a hard time seeing the goodness and the power of God in the midst of their struggles. 
Now, in the context of this letter, 1 Thessalonians, Paul is probably thinking about those who have suffered for their faith, which he has mentioned in chapter 2, and those that have experienced discouragement from understanding what has happened to those who have already died. So false teachers were telling them, well, well, they've missed the resurrection then. They're only going to get resurrected if if they're alive when Christ comes back. And they're thinking, oh my goodness, what what are we going to do? And Paul says, no, 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 that's wrong. Let me explain to you uh, again what, what this means. That being said, I don't think we need to limit ourselves just to people who are undergoing those things. I think we can apply this more broadly. So David Pallison is helpful when he says that when we think about ministry today, we should see here in the faint-hearted those people who think, feel, and act as if they are alone in a dangerous world. They approach life as if they were orphans and are prone to fears, discouragement, anxiety, attempting to prove themselves, attempting to control the uncontrollable. They get disheartened at their own shortcomings and by the hardships they face, they are prone to give up. Do you know people like that? Do you have brothers and sisters in Christ that that you see there? What do you do for them? Paul says you encourage them. You encourage them. That means that you come alongside them. You build them up. Specifically, like the call to admonish the idol, this work of ministry is done by the Word of God. They don't need a uh, slap in the arm. Come on, just, just do it. Let's go. You can handle this. Don't worry about this. Just, just, let's, get, let's get moving here, okay? That's not what they need. That's not what they need. That, that will not help them. What they need is someone to open up the Bible and point them back to God. They need someone to give them hope in Him. They need someone to to give them reason to go forward in life, and those reasons should be rooted in God. You need to open up passages like Hebrews 13 and tell them, look, God promises He will never leave you or forsake you. You you need to open up passages like Psalm 145 and remind them God is near to His people, especially in times of distress. God is with you and God is for you. Give them hope. That might be something formal where you meet together for an hour once a week or it might be something informal where you're simply talking to them after church and encouraging them or sending them text messages or whatever else. It might be just something you spontaneously say because you've quoted passages of Scripture and you're ready to employ them in ministry to God's people. But it might be even more urgent situation where someone calls you and And they just can't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And so you're just at their side immediately, perhaps daily over the course of a week, seeking to just be with them and to to manifest God's grace and His love in their midst. Whatever it is, the common approach is the same. To these disheartened people, you are seeking to provide shade in the heat of life that they might experience relief and be able to lift up their eyes to God. And that's done by pointing them to their God through His Word. That's how God brings about change. Paul says we should admonish the idle, we should encourage the faint-hearted, and third, we should help the weak. Help the weak. Now, the weak could be a lot of things here. When we look across the spectrum of the New Testament, the word weak describes sometimes those who are physically weak for various reasons, sometimes those who are weak in fighting temptation, and sometimes those who are immature in the faith and they don't know how to rightly connect the truth of God's Word to where they live in their lives. And to be honest, it's not completely clear which person Paul has in mind here or if he's just thinking broadly in such a way so as to capture all those groups. But 
I think when we look at the, the context of the letter as a whole and the immediate context of those he's just mentioned, the idle and the faint-hearted, I think he's probably thinking about those that are physically limited in some way and are in need of continuing help. We, we know from the letter there were those that were uh, sick, there were those that were dying, sometimes injured from persecution, there were those that were poor. I think that's the kind of week that he has in mind. So we think about people like this today, how do we identify them? We should think about those that have some kind of debilitating physical issue, perhaps something like MS or Alzheimer's. It might be someone who has a mental disability or someone who is elderly or even someone who is dying. In other words, this is not the kind of person you meet with for a couple of coffees. They get their spiritual footing and, and you move on. These are people that have an ongoing need that requires ongoing ministry. For these people, they you may not actually see much change over the course of their life. On the other hand, it could be someone who is a spiritual giant but is unable to care for themselves. What do we do with them? Paul says we help them. We help them. That seems pretty generic until we understand that this word help means something like to hold on to or to cling to or to put your arm around. I think Paul's point, especially for today, is that while the rest of society might shy away from such people or even neglect them altogether, we are called to remember they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what do we do? We take hold of them for the long haul. Our culture may just allow them to, to, to float off downstream, out of mind, out of sight, but we grab on and we don't let go. Because their capacities are limited, they need protection because they're easily victimized. They need help because they are weak and they can't do life by themselves. They may not even be able to ask for help. Therefore, we take the initiative to keep on helping those who are limited to help themselves. Now, before we move on, I want, us to, I want us to notice the wisdom that Paul is displaying here. I want you to think about what would happen if you encouraged the idol instead of admonishing them. Think about what would happen if you encouraged the idol. You would not help them to see their sin as an affront to God. They would think they're okay in their lifestyle and give, you would give them a false sense of security. But conversely, think about what would happen if you admonished the faint-hearted. You'd crush their spirits. You'd overburden them with their already exaggerated failures rather than bringing them comfort. So, so what Paul is saying is you've got to know, you've got to know people are different. They have different needs. They fall into different categories and you've got to be aware of that. And what that means in part for us as those seeking, trying to minister, for you wanting to minister to one another is cookie cutter approaches don't work. You can't just say, well, I really like this book and I'm just going to read this with everybody I disciple. Not everybody may need that book. Whether that's a biblical book or a, 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 a book by a popular author. What you need to evaluate is where is this person? What do they need the most? How can I serve them? Not just plop in and kind of do my thing. How can I serve them based upon what they need? All of our ministry to these kinds of people will involve the basics of prayer, the spoken word of God, and time with that person. But beyond that, the details are going to change based on the needs. And we need to have wisdom there. How, how do we have that wisdom? How do, we, how do we get to a place where we understand what people need? Well, in order to fulfill what God commands us to do in these verses, you have to be part of the church and not just present with the church. 
This is going to require more than just a passing knowledge of someone. This is going to require that you know more than just where they work, if they're married, and, and where they live. You have, to, you have to get past the superficial and actually be able to talk to and engage people on where they live and on what is important to them. This means spending time with people outside these four walls, being with the people of God in such a way that you know them intimately and you know their needs. It requires an investment of your time and your life that looks beyond just the needs of you and your family. Because the Christian life is not just about me and my family. It's about a faith family. It's about the local church that God has called us to give our lives to and invest in. Now understand, these three commands all fall under two, uh, a twofold rubric that Paul says must control everything. He says number four here on the subpoints that we must be patient and peaceable with all. We must be patient and peaceable with all. He says, be at peace among yourselves, verse 13. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, some behaviors require an immediate change. They're open and obviously sinful, and they just need to stop. But here's the thing. We might be able to help someone stop behavior. That doesn't mean their heart's going to stop craving the behavior. Okay, uh, I think probably if we're all honest, we've experienced that. We've been confronted with, I, I shouldn't be doing this, but our hearts still long to do that. We, we, we find ourselves in the midst of the, of the weirdest situations craving that sin. Have you ever been singing here on a Sunday morning? Praises to God and have the desire for sin or an image of your sin flash into your mind? It is the flesh rebelling against you, against us. And so what... Paul reminds us here is this, the process of sanctification is ongoing and it may be slow and it's going to require patience. If you're dealing with someone and you're trying to help them and meet with them and they are not better, as it were, their, their life is not in shape, their sin is not gone in two or three weeks, you don't get to say, oh, I can't believe this. Come on, I'm out of here. This is crazy. It's taking so long. No, no, no. What does Paul say? Be patient with them all. It's going to take time. It's going to require the long game, the long view of life that does not just throw the towel in whenever it becomes inconvenient from you. Furthermore, you need to expect there are some people who are going to resist change because of the hardness of their hearts. You're going to come alongside them. You're going to try to admonish those idle, and they're not going to want to hear it. Paul says, be patient with them all, but also be at peace with one another. Now, that might be from the leadership, the pastors he just talked about to the congregation, because that's where it comes in between those two groups. But I also think certainly it means the congregation at large. Now, why would we need to be commanded to be at peace and to do good to one another? Well, because the process of group sanctification, of getting involved in other people's lives to encourage them to holiness is sometimes not pretty. People are going to get mad at you. They're going to speak unkind words. Your feelings are going to get hurt. Promises will not be kept. In other words, sin's going to happen. And if you expect it something different than that in church, I'm sorry, but you haven't read the Bible. We are, we are saints who've been saved from sin. That doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. It doesn't mean that we don't fail in the expectations that God has for us. Some people may not want the help you're offering. Paul says, don't respond like the world. You know what the world's first response is? 
sometimes what our first response is, revenge. Somebody cuts me off, what do I want to do? Lay on the horn, right? Why? Because I can't get out of my car and punch them. I probably can't speed ahead and cut them off. I got to do something to get back at them. So I use the horn or some gesture that's inappropriate or some word that can't be uttered from a pulpit, or at least it shouldn't be uttered from a pulpit, right? Our, our first response is somebody, somebody does something bad for us at work, we're going we're gonna to get them back, right? We're going to sabotage their project or they're going to need help and we're not going to give it to them because our sinful hearts crave revenge. And Paul says, don't, don't be like that. That's not what we're about. But we're not a revenge-seeking people. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not the believer. Let, let God sort it out at the end. One of the things that, that, that I hear all the time is, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. You're right, it's not fair. Life isn't fair. Let God work it out at the end. He, he, will, he will deal out justice. So he says, be at peace, don't return evil for evil. Do the opposite, do good to one another. This is the very essence of Jesus' message of turn the other cheek. Now, why are these things so important? Because they speak to the whole motivation of the Christian life. Why we minister to one another. Were you, when, when we read these verses, did it sound familiar to you? Because Paul wrote another passage. I'm not sure you're familiar with it, but maybe you are. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It goes like this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul says, here's why we do what we do, because we love God's people. This is why we admonish the idle. This is why we encourage the faint-hearted. This is why we help the weak, because we love them. Why do we love them? Because God has loved them. And if God has so loved the people next to you in these chairs that he sent his son to die a horrible death, spilling his blood, bearing his wrath for them, then you have no excuse not to love them as well. Because God is far more offended by their life and their sin than you ever will be. So he calls us to love one another and in that love to strengthen one another. Now here's the thing. That sounds nice, but if we're all honest, we know it is not easy. We hear those simple commands and we think, how am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? And so what you need to understand is here, Paul not only tells us how to participate in ministry to God's people, but also how to prepare for ministry to God's people. This is the second direction that we see this morning, how you should prepare for ministry to God's people. He tells us, look, God calls you to this, but he's not left you alone. And he has given us clues right here in this passage to tell us, here's how we prepare for this ministry. And as I said before, we're going to go a lot quicker here. First, Paul says that we should respect God's workers. We should respect God's workers. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, Paul wants the believers in Thessalonica to be mindful of the leadership that God has provided to them as a local church. And there's a lot that we can unpack here. We could say, since I'm not going through 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to leave off much of that because I don't want it to appear self-interested in some way. But what I do want you to notice is that the el what the elders should be doing, laboring among the people, over them in Christ, and doing what? Admonishing them. There's that word again. Why is it there? 
for this simple reason. You will not be in a right frame of mind. You will not be spiritually oriented. You will not be prepared to admonish others if you are not actively being admonished. If you can't handle a guy behind this desk telling you that you're a sinful person, that you need to repent of that sin, and God, guess what? He will help you and forgive you and take encouragement from that, receive that and do it, then you are in no position to tell it to other people. You understand what I'm saying there? If you are not ready to be admonished, you're not ready to admonish others. And so we, we, we respect God's workers in that way. We allow the ministry of the word here to prepare us for the ministry of the word that will take place here and out there. Secondly, we need to pursue God's will. We need to pursue God's will. In verses 16 through 18, Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Now, obviously, there's a sense in which everything in this passage is God's will. So we're not drawing a sharp distinction here. At the same time, though, Paul is drawing attention to these three specific commands. He does that grammatically, and I think he also does that theologically. In other words, though this is the hardest things for us to do, it is the essence of the Christian life. Doing these three things, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances, that's what living the Christian life is all about. But I want you to understand that lest we think church and now individual, everything in these verses is also meant to be taken in the public context. He's already talked about the public admonishing of God's word through the pulpit. And now as he talks about rejoicing and praying and giving thanks, all of these verbs are in the plural. Which means if we were back in Louisville where I studied for ministry for three and a half years, I would translate this as, y'all rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Now that we've been doing ministry here for 10 years, I'm tempted to say, use guys, rejoice, pray, and give thanks. In other words, what he has in mind here are these commands being fulfilled, not just individually, though certainly that, but when we are gathered together as God's people. So Sunday mornings here in this service, Sunday nights when we are with our community groups, during the week when you're meeting with individuals or small groups for Bible studies and, and ministry training on your own, all of these things should be a part of our life. He doesn't mean that we just have to go around happy-faced, rejoice always. No, no, no. What he is inviting us to is the same thing that the psalmist invites us to over and over again, to worship the Lord, to have joy in him so that despite terrible circumstances, despite the fact there's not a grin on our face but tears dripping from our eyes, we still have joy in God. Our praying is not to be some unconscious state of mind, which would mean we never really pray, some kind of just attitude of prayer. No, no. It is to be a mindset that says, I will not only make time to pray, I will schedule it, I'll put it in my diary and on my calendar, and I will get it done, but I'm going to be ready at a moment's notice to spontaneously call out to God for help. That's what it means to, to pray without ceasing or to pray continually. And when we think of all that God has done for us, when we're even doing these two things, rejoicing in the Lord, praying always, then we will be able to give thanks to God in all circumstances, not just during the good times. And we need to be able to do that together as well as when we are alone. And if we're doing that, we will be prepared for the kind of ministry that Paul's calling us to. We will not only be spiritually ready to help others do that, but we will be prepared again when resistance is met, when ministry to people does not go well, when we don't get a good response when we try to admonish someone, or when we feel completely tapped out of energy and strength trying to encourage the disheartened or help the weak. When we come together 
as God's people doing these things, it will give us our bearings for ministry. Third, we should listen to God's word. We should listen to God's word. Paul says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. Now, uh, some of you know there is a whole can of theological worms that just exploded in, in, in these verses regarding the canon of Scripture, the ministry of the Spirit, the nature of New Testament prophecy and New Covenant ministry. Um, there's just no way we're dealing with this in the next 90 seconds. It's not going to happen, okay? So again, you put it in a suggestion box, preach on 1 Thessalonians when Luke's done, and we'll come back to it and we'll unpack this. But for those of you that, that uh, read articles and think about these things, I'll just say that I'll lay my cards on the table. It's not anything I haven't said before. I think people, when it comes to this idea of, of New Testament prophecy, I think people like Grudem and Storms are wrong and men like Schreiner are right. In other words, uh, New Testament prophets were very similar to Old Testament prophets, and we don't see any of those prophets today. Just like the, the gift of apostles died out, they're done, there's no living apostles, I also think that the, that the, 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 the uh, ministry and the office of prophet has died out today. So we don't hear the kind of prophetic words in the same way that, that Paul is thinking about here. Nevertheless, we can still apply the passage in this way. There is a kind of little p prophetic word that, that takes place whenever we think we are hearing someone's life situation, we're seeing their problems, and we're, and we're believing that what we can say from the Bible will help and apply to them. Does that make sense? In that way, we have a sort of prophetic ministry to one another. But here's the problem. Too often as God's people, we just shoot from the hip and give advice. And so what, what we say is not a great word from Obadiah or Philippians, but something worthless from Oprah or Phil. Okay? Paul says that's why we must test everything that we hear. We must test everything. After we test it, we hold fast to what is good. That good means what is authentic. It's the same word that's used in, uh, in outside the New Testament to describe uh, fake money and real money, people that were trying to forge coins. And just for those kids that are probably half asleep right now, let me just tell you, you cannot test the authenticity of money the way you see in cartoons. If you bite it, you will break your teeth because they make it with different metal now, okay? Uh, trust me from experience, don't do that, all right? They're not gold anymore. Okay? So Paul is saying, whatever we hear, whether that is from this pulpit right now, or whether it's the conversations that take place in these seats, or whether it's taking place during the week at a Bible study, you must test everything, and you must only hold fast to what is good and reject everything else. Now you say, how do we test it? Well, you test it by the Word of God. That's why you listen to God's Word. You test it by the Word. Ask these four questions, okay? Ask these four questions. Number one, does it contradict the clear teaching of the Bible? Does it contradict the clear teaching of the Bible? Number two, does it diminish or glorify Christ? Is what this person is saying, is what you're hearing, does it diminish or glorify Christ? Number three, does the messenger's life bear out the message? Does the messenger's life bear out the message? Paul goes to great lengths, as long as, along with Jude and Peter, of saying, you will know false teachers because they will have an ungodly lifestyle. Okay? So does the life bear out the message? Finally, number four, does what you're hearing, does it edify the church by convicting of sin, bringing an awareness of God, and producing a mature faith? Does it edify the church by convicting of sin, bringing an awareness of God, and producing a mature faith? 
Listen to God's word and test everything by it. Now, how is that related to quenching the spirit? Simply this, the Holy Spirit of God speaks through the written word of God. Okay, you, you, listen closely here because there's lots of crazy things that will go out. There's lots of popular piety and, and we just need to put the kibosh on it, okay? You cannot live a spirit-filled life apart from a word-filled life, okay? And in about 20 minutes, I can make that argument crystal clear to you. But what I will say is just do a quick study every time the, the word word or scripture or, or something along those lines is mentioned and spirit and how they're connected in the Bible, God speaks today through his word. So if I am not preaching the word, then God is not speaking through this sermon. If you are seeking to help one another, to admonish, to encourage, to help, and you're not doing it with the word of God, then God is not speaking through you. He's an accomplishing change, okay? So to quench the spirit is to close the book and to refuse to listen to it. Whether that is functionally saying, oh, I, okay, I should live a godly life and abstain from sexual immorality, but I really like sexual immorality. I'm going to go over here. You're not listening to the word. You've taken what you've said as the authoritative, sufficient word of God, and you've just closed it. You've plugged your ears and you've run the other way. That quenches the Spirit's work. It's like trying to hear somebody talk underwater. Right? You ever play that game when you're little? You say, ready, three, two, one, and you guys go under, and someone's going, and you come back up, and you say, what did I say? I don't know. I don't know. Say, say it again. And they get real close to your ear. Sometimes, so, so, sometimes, not anyway, it means be blasphemous. Sometimes the Spirit is screaming at us. He is screaming at us. Remember who you are in Christ. Don't live this way. And we've got the book closed, so all it sounds like is, and we can't hear it. We're, we're quenching the fiery power of God in our lives because we're not listening to the word. And so that's what we must do. If we're going to be ready to minister to one another, then we have to be ministered to through the scriptures. The picture that God gives in these verses, a picture of gathered assemblies that are essential for spiritual health, but they are not the end all of the Christian life. They build us up and they rightly orient us to God and to one another, but they also prepare and equip us for ministry. Let, let this be an encouragement to you. God is there, God loves you, and God wants to bring about change in your life. He, he wants to draw you in close to Him. That should make your heart rejoice because all of us need that. All of us need that. And one of the amazing ways that he has chosen to do that is through the ministry of his people, lovingly knowing, spending time, and speaking to one another that we might grow in a knowledge of God and that that might be evident with godly lives. Father, we are thankful for that, that blessing that we have, that you have not left us to fend for ourselves as orphans, but like our Heavenly Father, you have provided even for our very sanctification. God, you've saved us from sin, but now, God, you want to cleanse us from sin fully and finally. Oh, God, help us to be receptive when your people see the needs that exist in our life and want to come alongside us and, and, and lead us to see those same needs as well. And Father, give us courage, give us patience, give us a sense of peaceableness as we seek to, to take on the calling you have given us to be involved in ministering the word to your people, of admonishing, encouraging, and helping those that you love and sent your son to die for. Father, we ask these things in his name.
for the sake of His glory here and throughout the nations. Amen.